Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on the federal government to repeal the carbon tax in light of a new report that came out from the Chief Budget Officer. Jay Goldberg is the Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers. He'll join us to talk about that. Latvia wants Canada to take an active role in the Baltic defense front. Stephen Chase, Senior Parliamentary Reporter for the Globe and Mail, has details on that story. And have you heard that Putin is demanding the payment for Russian gas be made in rubles? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast. And it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Don't need to tell anybody about the pressures that we're all under uh, financially now because of what's going on uh, with the pandemic and, of course, the inflation rate, uh, raising interest rates, uh, and on and on it goes. It's, it's well known to just about all of us. Uh, and in that perspective, of course, we also want to remind you that uh, we're due for another uh, increase uh, when it comes to the uh, federal carbon tax uh, at the uh, end of this month. Uh, that is forthcoming. Well, a new report from the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office uh, suggests that's not a good idea and, and suggests that maybe at least delay this, if not cancel the whole thing together. I get to Jay Goldberg to comment on this. Jay, of course, is the interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who have been on this issue uh, right from the get-go. Jay, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Great to be with you. I know you've talked about the carbon tax and, and, and the impact it's having on Canadians. Uh, with the situation that we have right now, which is a very, very pressure-filled situation with each and every one of us in our households now, uh, this is, uh, I, I would think, a welcome report, almost uh, something to put the, the wind beneath your wings here for uh, the, the time that you suggested that maybe it's time to scrap this whole idea to get all together uh, because of the impact it's going to have on taxpayers. Absolutely. You know, we're facing very difficult times. We have high inflation, soaring living costs, and what the PBO report essentially shows is that the carbon tax is going to make life less affordable for Canadians in the short term and the long term. The federal government has constantly been trying to tell taxpayers that families will be better off uh, with the carbon tax because of the rebates that they're planning to give. But the reality is <clears throat> that by 2030, the rebates will actually fall short for the typical taxpayer by $845. So what, what's going to happen is taxpayers are going to be paying, in some cases, almost $1,000 more just to uh, make ends meet because the carbon tax exists. And we also know that the carbon tax isn't helping the environment. British Columbia has had a carbon tax since 2008. Their emissions are going up. And on top of the impact on families, the report also shows that we're going to have uh, essentially GDP growth cut in half by 2030 if we go down this road. And I've heard that argument from the federal government as well that said, you know, don't don't believe all this stuff. You know, in fact, some are suggesting that in some particular households, uh, there's actually a net benefit to taxpayers. You know, they, in other words, their rebate's going to be more than they pay. Uh, I haven't heard too many people that, that say, yeah, that's me. Uh, most of them are concerned about the impact it's going to have. But, but talk to us a little bit about the other aspect. I mean, we can talk about how this is going to impact me and my household, for instance. Uh, but industry is going to be involved in this as well. Uh, and that's an extra expense for them. Uh, is there a concern here that that expense simply is going to get passed on to the consumers? Absolutely, that's a concern. We know that when businesses face higher costs, uh, they have to pass those on. They're not just going to take those higher costs. What we're going to see is higher prices, and we're already seeing that. We're seeing uh, inflation at the highest levels we've had in Canada in 30 years. And part of the reason for that is the carbon tax, because when you transport goods anywhere from A to B, uh, the costs increase because gas becomes more expensive. So it's not just a question of us filling up at the pumps. 
It's literally a question about transporting goods all across the country so that we can get them in our grocery stores uh, and in other places. And that's what's driving up the prices right now. Uh, and as I was saying, the PBO report is showing that by 2030, our GDP growth, which in a typical year could be 2%, uh, could be cut by 1.3%, so down to 0.7% GDP growth, more than cut in half, if the carbon tax is implemented as planned all the way to 2030, and we're going to see $2.50, potentially $3 a litre gas. The uh, argument has always been uh, that this is a plan that's supposed to help the environment. Uh, and you mentioned the B.C. situation. Maybe you could expand on that just a little bit. And, and, and this is the B.C. government uh, that adopted this. I know it's been in play for some years, and it's a different governor or a different premier now uh, than, than they had at those days, but they're still supporters of this program. Uh, they seem to have, have modified the message at this stage, Jay, uh, that, yeah, it's not really going to reduce emissions. It's just really supposed to get people to think about not producing carbon, not driving as much, for instance, as we as consumers are, which is a bit of a different tactic and a bit of a different goal than they stated originally. It's definitely a different goal. And, you know, that might be fine for people who are living in downtown Vancouver or downtown Toronto and can walk to work and walk their kids to school. But all across the country, we have people who have to drive to work, who have to get their kids to school. And, you know, guess what? They can't afford to buy a $60,000 Tesla right now. Uh, to get relief from these incredibly high prices at the pumps. So that argument, those people who support the carbon tax on that argument are simply out of touch. And if the original rationale was to reduce emissions and we're not reducing emissions, then you have to ask, is this really an environmental plan or is it simply a tax plan? And when it was introduced in British Columbia in 2008, we were told it was an environmental plan and they had rebates for consumers. Uh, if you fast forward to 2022, it really is just a tax plan, and you're only getting a rebate if your household makes less than $50,000 a year. And that's a small percentage of people living in British Columbia. And so the concern is, if the federal government goes the way of B.C., we could end up seeing these carbon tax rebates that the feds are talking about um, restricted to people or households making, for example, less than $50,000 a year. Uh, and there's going to be a whole whack of households out there, millions, who could potentially be paying this high carbon tax and not even getting any refunds because that's the track record in BC and that's the that's the example that the federal government has consistently said they want to follow. Well, uh, we're all going to be interested to see just how the the government reacts to the uh, report here from the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, Jay, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Have a great weekend and I'm sure we'll talk again soon as uh, they, they roll out their policy if there's going to be any changes to it. Take care. You as well. Jay Goldberg, the interim director, uh, the Ontario director, that is, of course, for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that came up during the meeting in Brussels this week uh, was about defense spending. And every time there's a NATO meeting, invariably, uh, the idea of Canada's contribution to a NATO's defense spending uh, is being questioned. I know Donald Trump was very vocal about that, but other leaders have been as well. Uh, and even while the prime minister was in Brussels earlier this week, uh, the lobbying for more defense uh, involvement in NATO uh, was happening here in Ottawa, and, and not here in Ottawa, but in this country, certainly. Stephen Chase writes about this in the, uh, the Globe and Mail today. Uh, he is the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Oh, glad to be here. 
Uh, we know, of course, as we mentioned, the Prime Minister was in Brussels. Uh, we know the Defence Minister, Anita Anand, was with the Prime Minister. Uh, but the lobbying didn't stop. Uh, you write uh, in, in the Globe today about uh, the uh, Defence Minister for Latvia, who was actually in Ottawa, talking to the Defence uh, Minister, uh, the Defence Office, rather, but also the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, uh, and uh, with a pretty significant ask. Maybe you could describe that to our listeners. Yes, uh, Artis Pabrix is the, uh, he's not only the Defence Minister of Latvia, but he's also the uh, Deputy Prime Minister. And of course, Latvia is where we have Canada's biggest military deployments right now with at least uh, close to 700 soldiers uh, will be there. That, well, that'll be the count by the end of uh, March. And so he was, they're, they're seeking, uh, they want Canada to play a bigger role in, in, in NATO. And there is something which is, it's got awkward name, it's called the forces structure. Basically, it's a part of NATO that plans for war. So, you know, we, we most of what we see when we see NATO these days is sort of the operational uh, office side of things. But there's a whole other se- uh, separate structure in NATO that plans for war. And there is something called Multinational Division North. It is in it is based in Riga, the capital of Latvia, which is where Canadians are. And it basically plans for war with the Russians. Uh, and it coordinates uh, the... Uh, the land forces of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, which are the three uh, Baltic states, uh, most of which basically are directly adjacent Russia. So they, uh, Mr. Pabrix uh, is asking that we take on a leadership role in this organization. And this would be in addition to what we're doing now, which, of course, is leading a multinational battle group of uh, currently about 1,700 people uh, from 10 countries there. So, yeah, they're looking for more from us. But, of course, that's not all they're looking for. They're also looking for us to start spending some real money on defense. Uh, it's worth mentioning because, well, you did mention in the piece in the Globe and Mail, uh, those nations you just talked about were formerly, of course, under Soviet rule as part of the USSR. Uh, and I guess right now, that when they see what's going on in Ukraine, Stephen, uh, I'm sure that their angst has, has ramped up considerably right now. Do they feel as if they're in the crosshairs too? Yes. The, the way they put it is that they are grateful to be part of NATO, and they do feel protected within NATO, but that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, they're worried they will be next because the Kremlin has, the Kremlin has never been happy with these three Baltic states, former Soviet republics, joining NATO, which they all joined roughly in 2005. And, uh, in fact, many of these people who are in power right now in Latvia and Lithuania and so on, they're in their 50s. And they served in the Soviet Army as teenagers. So they don't, and, and some of them, uh, the Secretary of State for Defense uh, in, in Latvia, his, his, his parents-in-law were, and their families were sent to the Soviet gulag. So they, they have a, a, a distinct uh, loathing for being under Russia's heel. There's even a new monument they built in Latvia, the capital of Riga, just, just last summer, about all the people that were trundled off to uh Soviet gulags. So it's a very real and very visceral fear. Uh, and you mentioned, of course, about their involvement in NATO and their 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 members now. And you know, an attack against one is an attack against all. And, and a lot of us, I guess, uh, maybe naively, Stephen, assume that well, that Putin's never going to do that. I mean, you know, what he's doing in Ukraine, he's doing because he knows uh, that they're not going to set foot across the border. Would he be bold enough if he's as successful in Ukraine to to start targeting these three nations too? The concern has been that if we fail to stop Putin, if the West fails to stop Putin, if NATO fails to stop Putin in Ukraine, that eventually he will turn his attention to the Baltics, too, because 
he is obsessed with the idea there needs to be a buffer zone between Russia and the West. And the buffer zone means that the country next to you is not part of NATO. And if he succeeds in making Ukraine a buffer zone, essentially a, a sterile puppet state, which is not part, has no real links with the West and no real uh, relationship with the West, then the other areas he's going to look to are the Baltics. And of course, Estonia and Latvia uh, are directly border Russia. And Lithuania borders Belarus, which everybody considers the puppet state of Russia right now. So effectively, it's kind of moot. But the, that would be the next place for him to look, yes. Uh, you mentioned in the piece, uh, this is, uh, I thought, an interesting quote from uh, Mr. Pabricks. Uh, we need to de-Putinize the West. We cannot approach this aggressive authoritarian regime with soft gloves. So he's, he's looking for action here from the Canadians, isn't he? Yeah, he's looking for action from the West. What he's talking about is we're going after the oligarchs. Um, and, but many of these oligarchs have extended family uh, who have then effectively hold their properties for them in the West. So there are legions of wealthy oligarchs, you know, children, brothers, sisters, daughters, and so on, who, who are still holding most of their assets in the West. And his point is they are living in the West, benefiting from the West, but at the same time promoting the war, supporting the war, and helping perpetuate the, the system uh, of wealth that surrounds Mr. Putin. So he's saying, you know, we're, we've only begun this process of, of uh, uh, sort of removing that from the West. And, of course, uh, what he's also talking about is setting a, a firm date for all Western European countries to, be, to, to end their reliance on Russian petroleum, uh, chiefly natural gas. As, of course, you mentioned here, as Patrick is in Ottawa talking to uh, Minister Freeland, uh, we know that the Prime Minister and, uh, and Minister Anand, who were over in Brussels, uh, were once again reminded uh, that they, they need to step up with uh, increased spending. Uh, is what Mr. Pabrick's t- talking about here a way for Canada to do that? Because the, the question has always been, it's not just a dollar figure. It's, okay, where would Canada's assets go? It sounds to me as if uh, Minister Pabrick's here is, is giving them uh, uh, basically a, a, an outline and a game plan for, for Canada's involvement, Canada's increased involvement anyway. He is offering them another role, but this is not an equipment-heavy role. This would mostly be, uh, you know, flag level. This would basically involve a Canadian general and a bunch of our of senior staff, um, and then of course war planners and logistics planners and so on. So it's not, you know, tip of the spear uh, combat troops or, you know, high-powered artillery. It's more of the uh, sort of uh, senior management uh, logistics approach. So it's it's not the full picture. And, and I guess when we talk about Canada's failure to meet its NATO commitment of 2%, we haven't spent 2% of our annual economic output, uh, our GDP, on on um, on the military since 1990 in this country. And what we tend to do, and this is the little trick we play, is we tend to find a big ticket or a, a, a public, very public uh, contribution, and then we, we play that up as if that would somehow mitigate the, the, the concerns. For instance... Uh, you can expect to hear Canada talking a lot about its battle group in Latvia, the leadership of the battle group in Latvia over the next little while, as it attempts to sort of beat back calls for more spending. And of course, we're, the other thing is, and I should point this out, that we have uh, failed to spend, failed to make a decision on buying uh, new jet fighters for like 20, 12 years now. And uh, so we, it's likely that what we will do is commit to buying jet fighters and ask to include that as the, in the count. But of course, that's simply replacing assets. That's not adding assets, right? Yeah, and I know you've written about that in the past as well. I mean, even with the fleet that we have, which is outdated, uh, I think half of them are grounded right now, aren't they? You know, I would say maybe we have 70 
uh, that actually work and the rest are parts and spare parts and so on. So it's a very it's a very minor number for a country of our size. And I talk about our geographic size from Ellesmere Island to, you know, to, to, to uh, Vancouver Island and so on. You mm-hmm. can make the three points yourself there. Uh, well, more to come on that, we certainly hope. Uh, another piece that you wrote, i got a couple of minutes left here, Stephen, if you could. Uh, discussion with uh, Boris Johnson and the Prime Minister of what a free trade deal with the UK and Canada. Of course, this first surfaced uh, when the UK opted out of, uh, of what was going on with the European Union, and, and they wondered, you know, well, what kind of deals are going to be in place? And I know Canada offered something up. Have they hammered out any details about that? How far down the road are they? Well, it looks like we're just at the outset, actually, instead of far down the road. Uh, back in uh, about a year, more than a year ago, we basically stapled in place a temporary deal to sort of tie things over after the uh, UK left uh, the Brexit. Now, now, the UK is actually a pretty important trading partner. It's like the second largest destination for our exports if you combine both goods and services, services being engineering, you know, banking and all that stuff. So it's a pretty important uh, destination for exports. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot of uh, British uh, investment here. But the, the thing is, is that um, the U.K. is desperate for trade deals. It needs to have what we call preferential access to foreign markets now that it's lost uh, its trading relationship through the EU. And uh, they're saying it could take two years to hammer out a deal. Uh, I think the big problem is going to come down to what it always comes down to is both countries' uh, agricultural sectors and how much are willing to open them up and that that is always a sticking point there also might be a, an issue with banks because the uk we have we have powerful banks but the uk is a powerful banking sector as well and there's going to be a tussle over how much each gets access to each other's sector so um could take a could take a couple of years i don't uh, i don't see this being a, a quick a quick fix I was going to ask you about that because we, you know, referenced that I guess by way of comparison uh, with the the Canada-U.S. negotiations that went on. And Christy Freeland, of course, was deeply involved in that with uh, uh, Robert Lighthizer on the other side of the boat. And the auto sector was a key element of that, and of course, the dairy sector. So you're suggesting that that the agriculture could actually be the the rather acrimonious element of the negotiations here too. Yeah, and we have we have like a, a split personality when it comes to uh, foreign trade. We are protectionists heavily protectionist when it comes to dairy, eggs, and poultry. We don't want people coming in. We give limited access. But when it comes to grain, beef, and pork, we are world-class free traders. <laughs> the whole different world there. And we're, we're always seeking export markets for our grain, pork, and, and beef, and chicken, and so on. And, of course, the challenge is going to be uh, the, Amer- the Brit- Brits aren't going to give us full access. They're going to give us partial access. And so we're going to be fighting for that. Meanwhile, the dairy, eggs, and poultry sector in this country have, have told the prime minister and the government that they will not accept any more ac- uh, foreign access into our markets. And when I say foreign access, I mean foreign access without tariffs. It's called tariff-free tariff tariff free access. Uh, and, in fact, the government has committed in writing that it will not allow this. But Boris Johnson is not giving up. He, has, he wants to sell lot, loads of uh, uh, British cheese to Canada, and he has said he, he wants to see... Uh, more uh, tariff-free access for British cheese. So despite the government's tough talk about not letting in any more uh, British cheese at, at uh, tariff-free prices, it uh, looks like Mr. Johnson's going to be pushing for that. How contentious is this going to be with the Canadian agricultural industry? I know going well, back a couple okay. of years ago, I remember Prime Minister Harper tried to strike a deal with the European Union, about, uh, and dairy was a very contentious item. And, oh, and, what happens, and they did this with the TPP too, that Trans-Pacific Partnership, is we essentially cut a check and we kind of compensate 
he actually pays compensation to the dairy farmers for allowing in foreign competition. And he's already, uh, we're on the hook for billions in compensation for both the TPP and, and the European deal. And if, if we were to do it again, we'd have, uh, Mr. Trudeau would have to take out the checkbook again. Uh, but he is, uh, and this is where it's going to come down to is how, how badly he doesn't want this deal with Britain. Is he willing to offer them some cheese access despite having promised not to? And, of course, that would lead to a checkbook. Absolutely. Uh, as always, appreciate the time today. Uh, great reporting, as, uh, as we expect, of course, from you, Stephen. Uh, have a great weekend. It's been a busy week for you, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Take care. Stephen Chase was the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, and a couple of very, very important elements uh, of uh, the negotiations over the last couple of weeks, both uh, to do with, of course, with NATO and uh, with the UK and the uh, eminent, uh, we think, uh, free trade deal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about Ukraine and certainly the impact this is having uh, on the European nations and uh, even some of the former uh, sections of the uh, former USSR. Uh, but what about the other side of the world? Uh, Vladimir Putin's eyeing that as well uh, with a, a rather interesting policy over the last little while. Uh, Asian importers of Russian gas are now scrambling uh, after Russian President Vladimir Putin says unfriendly countries are going to have to pay for Russian gas in rubles. And they've only got a few days to get their act together to do something like that. And we're talking about some major dealers here, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan among them. So what is going on? What, what's the game plan here for Putin? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. With you, Bill. Let's uh, what's, what's, get right to the, the bones of this. What is Putin's strategy here? I mean, uh, we know that these are partners and they've been actually customers, I guess, of, uh, of Russian energy uh, for quite some time right now. Uh, but is, is this a response to the sanctions that, uh, that NATO and other parts of the, uh, the world have already imposed on Russia? Yes, figuring out the mind of Putin plus the vagaries of international high finance. Put those two t- together, and you get a lot of mysteries. The, oh yeah. Uh, the um, uh, one thing to notice is that it isn't just the Asians; uh, they they are the only ones specified. But he made this as a general announcement that you know from now on everybody's going to have to do this, meaning Europe. But for the moment, he's only mentioned three in particular, and he mentioned those three in particular because they have. Uh, LNG agreements with Sakhal and with with uh, Russian companies through Gazprom, so they are the first ones affected. But they, in theory, are not the only ones. Why is he doing this? Well, um, you can speculate, and there are there's there's speculation in the media. The possibility, on the one hand, the very first uh, possibility is, yeah, this is a way out of the sanctions because those sanctions, unexpectedly harsh and quick have really cut him off, who's cut Russia off, from the possibility of accessing the dollar market. So let's just switch it over to the ruble market. So from now on, you pay in rubles. Besides which, the ruble is crashing. It's gone down 85%. It's worth less than one cent U.S. apparently at the minute. Uh, so if you force people to the states to start using the ruble, it will also pump up the value of the ruble while avoiding sanctions. I think that's at least two of the reasons uh, in the in this planning, but not prop it up enough for it to be viable. I mean, as you say, it's crashing right now. Uh, this is uh, this is not going to create any sense of equilibrium for for the Russian economy, is it? The Russian economy has been described by others as a nuclear armed gas station. That's all that Russia has. Uh, it isn't quite true. They have 
know, coal and wheat and sure. copper and other things. But uh, in fact, they're a treasure house of rare metals. And other, but uh, that's another story for another day. The the economy is still of the of Russia is very very heavily dependent on energy exports. Most of those uh, go to to Europe. A lot of those go to Europe, but it goes globally as well, including to Asia, as we're now discovering. The um, ability to push contractors into switching mid-contract to from one form of currency in that contract to another is itself dubious. Would it save them uh, globally? Well, it would certainly go a long way at the minute to getting them out of the crunch, the bind that they find themselves in. But in the long run, it's also a way to push um, America out and the U.S. dollar and, the, and also the euro out as the only reserve currencies, the only currencies of international exchange. So you get countries in Asia dealing with Russia in contracts that have written for U.S. dollar delivery. So the, um, the long-term pressure here is on to substitute the U.S. and the euro, the U.S. dollar and the euro, as the only reserve currency and currency of international transaction with the yuan, with the Chinese currency. Uh, this is a push in that direction in the long term as well. Are, are these nations that, uh, and here, three that we referenced here, but there will be others, I'm sure, uh, are they going to be compliant here? Because I, I, I already saw some comments from some of the Japanese folks uh, that are saying, we're not sure he can even enforce this. What's he even doing here? And and the companies, uh, the, you know, the, the utility companies basically say, we haven't heard anything about this. So, you know, is, is this Putin just with bluster or is this this going to be a, a solid pe- pe- uh, you know, policy f- moving forward? It seems like he's lashing out and thrashing out because of the increasingly effective sanctions put upon him. He's given Gazprom one week, his, he's given his officials one week to come up with this um, this plan as, a, as, a, as an implementable, effective action. Uh, and that week has just started, of course. But, uh, yes, it's catching everybody flat-footed. Can he even make it happen? That's being raised. And also, interestingly, as part of that same discussion, does this mean there's no longer a contract? Have they violated the terms of the contract? So the contract is off. Now, that would cut two ways. The people who want the gas need it, and the LNG, and they need it. But at the same time, Russia needs the income, and they need that export, uh, particularly since they pointedly started with Asia. They're looking to non-European sources. Can it be done? This is now in the hands of um, the mysteries of international finance. But I, I think they are putting themselves in some jeopardy, Russia, as showing themselves desperate and also perhaps asking something that's not enforceable. It does roil the markets. And that has a positive effect. <laughs> this is so bizarre. The price of gas has now gone up because of this announcement. And since right now the announcement hasn't actually taken effect, the value of European of, of exports from Russia in terms of energy has gone up. So he's making money off the announcement, whether it's enforceable or not. Uh, let's talk about Canada's rule here, if we could, Elliot, for a couple of seconds. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, as an importer, we do import Russian energy, not a lot, but some. No. Uh, we're one of those unfriendly countries. Are we going to be impacted this way? Well, <laughs> well you're talking now about Canada and Asia, and that's kind of my, my wheelhouse. The, yeah. um, uh, the energy component of it is uh, 
apparently part of the, the struggle now over Ukraine, so that the Canada has said, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has said, we are now going to help the U.S. in its quest to provide more energy to the world. We'll provide, provide more energy to the U.S. so they can provide more exports to the rest of the world to wean Europe in particular off their um, off their dependence, 40% dependence on Russian energy supplies. So if there's a, a circular uh, motion there, how will that affect uh, us and Asia? I would like to point out that uh, we now have coming up something where Canada can make a big difference. We are members of the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. It used to be just the TPP, but we made the yep. change. And uh, South Korea and Taiwan are both applying for membership now. We should get behind that. We need these countries, these states, sorry, these um, entities, <laughs> since Taiwan's not technically a state, it's an economic entity. We need them in the TPP. The strengthening of the, um, I was going to say security architecture, but broadly speaking, the structure of democratic alliances, uh, which we now have seen shockingly come together in a way Nobody would have thought, and Mr. Putin didn't think in terms of pushing back on, in, on, over Ukraine. But this is a global struggle, and Canada has a role to play. We are, as every now and then we discover, an Asia-Pacific country, an Indo-Pacific country. We have an Indo-Pacific strategy we don't announce. We don't announce all kinds of things relating to Asia. But we need to, uh, we need to be in Asia and support the democracies of Asia as we go forward. Uh, which brings up I mean, I, the point about the U.S. saying they're going to ramp up production and Canada saying that we're going to do the same sort of thing uh, because of what's going on with Ukraine. And I guess now with uh, what's happening over, as you mentioned, the Asian countries, uh, is there going to be a, a, a reassessment of, of pipelines in the administration and with, with Canada, for that matter? Uh, and I'm sure they're wondering right now, you know, what about the first the trans mountain pipeline first of all i mean which we had hoped was going to be completed by now Don't we uh, which would have been part of I, I guess the solution for the the asian nations would it not to simply say look at yes. we can cover your your back here but when i guess we're not prepared to do that yet well that's the reason we are saying yes we want to step up immediately but we can't because our pipelines are north south primarily not east west and yeah. we can't get to, can't get to tidewater uh, which is a long standing problem and now that's a political problem perennially inside canada with and the Prairie Province is saying, you know, Ottawa doesn't care about us, and they're shafting us, et cetera. So the, um, we're into domestic political politics, uh, political dynamics here. However, what we do know is that uh, in order to achieve the climate goals that everybody wants, we should not be increasing fossil fuel production. In order to have, however, a short-term effect, particularly over the Ukrainian crisis, we have to. And also in terms of actually those those production lines that uh, keep getting disrupted so in the short term it's now being said that uh, we should be looking to gas which is cleaner than oil but meanwhile the oil sands have been so blackened in the u.s in the domestic politics therefore over the environment as being dirty oil that the u.s is now going to to venezuela and to iran <laughs> to say we want more of your oil just you know what the, the price here is give us two of your hostages you put in jail release them and we might release you from your from your sanctions that are on you because we need more oil and i'm watching the iran nuclear deal 
which increasingly looks like an oil deal because that million dollars, a million barrels a day out of Iran is going to become critical in the short term to deal with the energy crisis we have. So we are in a very complex situation where we're not yet in the future in regard to getting off oil, but the total imperative of everything you and I are talking about today is we need to get off oil. Absolutely. Uh, listen, while I've got you, you and I have talked in the past uh, about China and, the, and its impact, not just, of course, in, in the Asian Pacific area, uh, but how they may be responding because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And there was some speculation that I know you've commented on in the past, Elliot, that they may look at this as an opportunity and say, gee, I know if, if Putin does that with Ukraine, uh, you know, looking at Taiwan, maybe we can do the same sort of thing. Uh, are, are they having some second thoughts if they actually were even planning that? I mean, seeing what's happening with the Russians in Ukraine right now, are, are they kind of saying maybe Taiwan's not such a, such a good idea now? Yes. What are the lessons that China is learning uh, from the situation with Russia in Ukraine? That's a big, a big broad question, and of course it may, relates most specifically to Taiwan, because there's no doubt at all, Xi Jinping has made it very, very clear that by 2049, the anniversary of founding the party uh he wants he wants taiwan to be part of mother china and it's mm -hmm. on his to-do list but he hasn't said when or how but he's not ruled out not ruled out the use of force now now he's looking over there and saying oh well um there's more than one way to say what are the reactions we don't actually know factually we can only speculate but one is what you've just said that oh look the um Russians, who have an overwhelming superiority militarily, are having trouble because the Ukrainians are fighting so well, therefore we might have that same problem in regard to Taiwan. So we have to think twice whether we would go ahead with what is, I have to emphasize, already advanced planning for an invasion and takeover of Taiwan. They are, I would call it phase one uh, along the lines. They planned that uh, in great detail on this. But uh, is that the lesson they're learning, or are they learning the lesson, you know, if you brandish your nukes early, you can get away with anything. Uh, will, will the U.S. really, as we've seen in Ukraine, will the West really come to the rescue? If they won't in Ukraine, they won't in Taiwan as well, if threatened with nukes. Uh, so there's more than one possibility of lessons. I would suggest that not much is likely to happen in regard to Taiwan and China. It's just a, a guess, um, because... We don't know the thinking there. You know, you and I talked about this as a fantasy a while ago, a scenario where there would be a simultaneous attack on Ukraine by Russia and China and Taiwan, but that's not happening. But the big item for Mr. Xi Jinping, as you and I have talked about, is confirming him in probably late October. The 20th Party Congress as basically leader for life. Does he really want to have turmoil and the possibility that it would go badly for him, or does, would he want a big military victory prior to that? But my guess is, and they keep saying this, we want tranquility in the global global affairs. We keep telling Russia we want, we want things to uh, be peacefully negotiated until after he is confirmed, I think, in, at the 20th Party Congress. I don't think there will be a lot of action toward Taiwan, other than their continuing uh, attrition efforts at at uh, sending over bombers and other attack ships, uh, aircraft, to test them over and over and over, wear down Taiwan's defenses uh, while we are looking elsewhere. And, of course, the other side of this, we can talk about it uh, from the military side, certainly, and, and what's going on in Ukraine. 
but the sanctions and the impact these sanctions have had have got to have come as a, a surprise to, to Chinese officials yeah. as well. I mean, to see the way that the entire globe has, has pretty much rallied behind Ukraine, and it's having a devastating effect on the Russian economy. Is China concerned that, my God, if we do something with Taiwan, they're going to do that to us? Yes, we talked about this. Gosh, it seems like weeks ago now, but precisely, yeah. precisely that. One of the lessons watching the Ukraine situation is in eight days, a devastating sanctions regime has been imposed on, on Russia. Now, China is far, far more um, engaged uh, globally uh, in global commerce, and they depend on it. They, they are trying, by the way, to transition their, their economy to domestic uh, support rather than overseas support, but uh, that's in the long term. Right now, could they even afford? Could they even afford to consider the possibility of that kind of sanctions being put on them? And I'm sure that's also part of the reckoning about what to do about Taiwan. Uh, because I mean, they they have responded and pushed back in the past. I mean, you know, with the two Michaels and some of the sanctions, and you know, and, they, and they've played. And I guess on a one-off basis, they can stand that, can't they, Ellie? They, you know, yeah, we'll take on Canada, maybe even the states to a certain extent. Uh, you know, with uh, we can put tariffs on and things of this nature. Uh, but I mean, they even push back about you know the five G networks, the countries that have said we're not using, uh, you know, Huawei, and 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 you know they they get ticked off about that but if the entire globe starts going down on china right. uh they can't handle that i wouldn't think in any way shape or form i don't think they would like to invite it uh they're keeping a close eye keep in mind that mr putin in their view remember they just have this uh alliance without limits uh this uh that they signed on february 4th and you and i talked about it i think you know probably february 5th but the uh they they are strong strong backers of of russia on the other hand a core tenant, as we've talked about, you and I, of, of their foreign policy is, and their, their domestic policy really is, there shall not be any invasion and occupation of states. We went through that, China says, and we had a century of humiliation. Now we have national rejuvenation, and that's why we are standing forth now and asserting ourselves, but we are at the same time supporting Russia to invade and occupy a neighboring state, contrary to their own uh, longstanding firm principles. The success of Mr. Putin uh, on the ground, if he could successfully change the strategic situation of Europe and therefore the world by succeeding to incorporate Ukraine and Moldova, probably, and of course Belarus, and then bring power to break. If, they can, this is, if, if NATO and Europe can be, in a sense, picked apart by Russia through success in this Ukraine operation, that would change the reckoning of what China can sees how China sees the world. On the other hand, if they're backing now, and they are, a losing uh, enterprise, if Russia goes down into ignominy and is, is uh, clearly losing this, this kind of gamble, it might make them hesitate on Taiwan, but it might also strengthen them. You know, it's a great gift, as you and I have talked about this, that nobody's talking now about mobilizing the de democratic world against China, because... Right now, everybody's mobilizing in the West, the Western democracy, not the West, because Japan's the countries we mentioned, South Korea, yeah. Taiwan, and uh, Japan is part of all this. Democracies are, at the moment, mobilizing not in regard to China, but in regard, in regard to Russia, a great gift to China at the same time. If it doesn't go badly, the already dependent relationship where Russia's a junior partner uh, could reduce Russia to a vassal state. And all of those resources 
currently locked up in long-term contracts, uh, you know, 30-year contracts for oil and, uh, and I think there's some coal and also some wheat contracts. But Russia then would become basically tossed into the Chinese orbit as no longer even a claimant to being a superpower and a treasure house of wealth uh, which China needs for its rise. Elliot, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. i got so many other questions for you. We'll have to do a part two to this uh, in the next couple of days because I've got a, a number of issues, including some of the comments that the Deputy Prime Minister of Latvia made in Ottawa yesterday, too. Yeah, uh, those, but those we'll save that for the next time. Uh, thanks so much, Elliot. Great talking with you again. Have a great weekend. <laughs> thanks. Same to you. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, from uh, Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Those of us like me stayed up late last night to watch uh, Canada's uh, men's soccer team uh, in Costa Rica. They are uh, unbeaten, no more, uh, falling 1-0. I want to bring uh, Joe Callahan back into the conversation. Joe, of course, a sports journalist uh, who writes for the Toronto Star and The Guardian. Uh, disappointing night last night, Joe, uh, and, and John Herdman just, I, I pretty much echoed the sentence of a lot of people. Things just did not go their way in almost every facet of the game yesterday, did they? Yeah, you know, there was, there was just, you know, like, <clears throat> we're, what, 17 games into this uh, qualifying campaign, Bill, and it's remarkable that, you know, Canada hasn't had a night like that to this point. Yeah. And I guess that's probably one of the surprising things. And, you know, in the clear light of this morning, like you say, you know, in, in late, late last night, it was kind of maybe hard to find the perspective, but you know, everything, everything at this stage has been kind of for the first time in a long time. And, you know, it's kind of to be expected that, you know, there are learning experiences, but this did seem to be kind of one of the harsher ones for sure. Obviously the red card for Mark Anthony Kay after whatever the 35 minutes, like that was a huge drag on, Canada in terms of kind of playing for ten, playing with 10 men for nearly a full hour. Um, it was always going to be a big ask. I did think if they'd got to halftime at nil-nil and given Herdman his chance to kind of re- reset things, that would have helped. But conceding the goal just before the interval, you know, and try as they might, and they did put up a hell of a fight in the second half. Uh, I think that's yeah, I thought performance, so. Yeah, it might be one of the most impressive performances of the campaign. There's so many ironies, you know. Well, and you mentioned uh, in our last conversation yesterday, I mean, what we tend to lose sight of the fact that, I mean, this is a team that, frankly, has been decimated by injuries uh, yeah. over the last uh, number of months, uh, and yet they, you know, the, they, they stepped up. I, I thought the, the tide was actually turning just around the time that uh, the red card was issued. You know, I thought Canada yeah. was starting to gain some momentum then, but that really took the wind out of their sails. Yeah, it did, and, and you're right to mention the injuries. Even if you think about the goal, Bill, you know, the, the ball was kind of cycled down the right, uh, down, the Costa, down the Costa Rican right, and came came into the box. And there was Canada's smallest player, Stefan Estacchio, um, marking kind of three attacking Costa Ricans. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but think of Stephen Vittoria, who has probably played above himself more than anyone in this Canadian kind of squad over the last kind of few months. He missed last night with a, with a niggle. He was on the bench. Herdman didn't want to risk him. But that's the kind of ball that he would have cleared with kind of emphasis, you know. So definitely there was a couple of the absences cost them. And to go back to the red card, look, Mark anthony Kay, much like Victoria, much like Victoria has kind of played wildly above himself and, and really kind of become a kind of key figure for Canada. But it was just given that he was on a yellow card and that yellow card had been, <laughs> there was a long look at the video assistant referee to kind of see whether to upgrade that yellow to red in the first place. He just needed to be smarter, a wee bit smarter and a wee bit, just a wee bit more kind of street smart. And look, 
again, we're kind of 12 games into this stage of the qualification campaign. We're 23 games in the last 12 months. There's no shame in a little bit of naivety. This is the first time Canada has been at this, even this stage since 1998. It's just, again, surprising that maybe it's taken this long for, you know, Canada to be caught like that. Uh, I, I don't know there's any sense at all and, and nothing to be gained from, you know, second-guessing the, the officials in, at any sport. Uh, but I w- you're absolutely right. I, I'm questioning the yellow card, let alone the red card a few minutes later. Uh, that was a very, very close call, and I, I don't know if it, it warranted a yellow. Uh, but your point, you know, about Kay, you know, being on his best after that. But the emotions seem to be running pretty high, though. Did you notice, Joe? I mean, I know in the yeah. reporting afterward, we found out, I mean, you know, the, these guys got, uh, I guess, cheered, or jeered on the bus even coming into the stadium. The fans mm. were crazy. I mean, uh, the Canadian National Anthem got drowned out by fireworks displays. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, you, and you told us about this yesterday. You said it's going to be a different mm. atmosphere down there. And you were absolutely right. The, the fans were just all over these guys. Yeah, like I said, it's a, it's a loud place to watch a game of football, never mind kind of try and keep your head in the middle of it. Uh, but yeah, the fireworks were still something new. You know, I've covered a lot of football games and a lot of hostile atmospheres. I've never seen a national anthem. I've seen that. I've heard national anthems drowned out with boos and jeers and nonetheless, but just a barrage of fireworks like that really kind of set the tone. And I, I think the other thing we have to remember here is that that was the first full house for Costa Rica in quite some time due to COVID restrictions there. You know, it's a place those people love their football and you've 35,000 people in San Jose on a, on a Thursday night. It was always going to be, a, you know, just a testing atmosphere. But I agree with you, Bill. I, I kind of felt that just right around the red card and people that I was watching the game with too and, you know, Canada had really begun to settle and had begun to kind yeah. of forage forward. Things were looking good. It was kind of fitting into a rhythm we've seen on the road, you know? Um, so, yeah, look... Definitely a disappointing night, and yet, you know, you you look at some of the comments from Atiba Hutchison, uh, the captain, and some of the other veterans afterwards, and, you know, even straight away, they were like, you know, there's not, we, we shouldn't be kind of looking at this as kind of a, a lost night. We've actually learned a hell of a lot about ourselves, you know? Well, and with all the adversity, the red card, and playing a man short, and the injuries, in the 73rd minute, a header off the crossbar, and that could have, it would have changed everything. Yeah, the, the woodwork definitely was with Canada. Whatever about the officials, the woodwork wasn't either. You know, hit the, hit the crossbar, hit the post again, kind of about 10 minutes from time. Really laid siege to the Costa Rican goal. And, you know, again, on another night, or something we mentioned yesterday and we can never get away from is, you know, with Alfonso Davies there, a kind of their talisman, um, you know, you have to imagine that you know, Canada could have broken through. So definitely a few things against them. But, you know, <clears throat> I think it was Herdman said, you know, it wasn't a lack of desire or a lack of passion. He said, uh, football can be cruel on nights like this, but it's been good to us for the last 17-odd games. Yeah, you know, in any other game, I guess, the, the previous 16 or 17, I mean, both those shots go in. You know, the, the, it yeah. doesn't hit the crossbar. It goes underneath. And, uh, and you know, then, as you say, another goalpost a few minutes after that, too. So they were pressing. Uh Let's let's talk about going forward. I mean, the good news is, I mean, they're certainly not out of this. I mean, they only need one more point. Uh, they're back home uh, this weekend, of course, uh, against Jamaica. Is it going to be difficult for these guys to regroup? I I, I got to be honest. This is where Canada's own kind of first full house again since you know first full house in Toronto since October. You know, there, there was a brilliant atmosphere in Hamilton. <laughs> we both laughed at the time that it was yeah. supposed to be half capacity in January and. It, it felt that it was almost full. But I think a full BMO field on Sunday afternoon should really kind of light the fires. 
And, you know, anyone who has a ticket for that game now kind of really is relishing it, you know, whereas before last night, they kind of thought it could be a bit of a homecoming party, but, you know, with nothing at stake, not not as much at stake. But now there's a huge thing at stake. And, you know, like this team, and, and Herdman speaks so passionately about this, you know, they've really felt a connection with the country. And I think winning and qualifying and kind of having that moment in front of the country feels right. So, you know, I think there's even, you know, Milan Borjan last night said, you know, one of his kind of last closing comments was, we're going to go there and we're going to get it done at home. Um, so there's definitely a focus. I would, you know, yes, it's a, it's a hectic kind of playing on a Thursday night late in San Jose and flying back in, but I don't see them losing focus. I think there's going to be 35-odd thousand in BMO who are going to help them focus right from the get-go. And I know there are some athletes that will say, well, we don't even hear the crowd. We don't pay attention, mm-hmm. uh, which is baloney. Uh, of course you mm-hmm. do. They certainly heard the Costa Rican crowd last night. But this, this team does respond to the crowd, don't they? I mean, you know, in Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton, the game's there. Uh, again, not, not even full capacity, but they were there. And it, it, as you say, I don't. at Tim Hortons Field the other day, you could they fed off the enthusiasm of the crowd, didn't they? Mm-hmm, totally. And and, and it, it, it's reciprocal, right? Because... Uh, I remember we spoke, what was it, kind of September, October after one of the first few games and people, uh, long-time observers said it was the first time they could remember seeing ticket scalpers outside of Men's International at BMO. This was kind of way back at the start of the campaign. But the demand to see this team and to be there to cheer them on is huge. Like I, I just checked just kind of for instance this morning, the cheapest resale tickets, tickets on the resale markets and websites or whatever were hovering just under $400 a seat. You know, so the the demand to be there and to cheer them on, it, it is a reciprocal thing. But yeah, they, they're certainly a team that fed off, that have fed off it all the way, you know. And yeah, you're right. It goes both ways. And when you go on, go on the road to a hostile atmosphere um, in Central America, it can go against you like last night. And it can pressurize uh, match officials too, Bill. Like that's the thing. You know, I was kind of surprised he almost didn't turn Mark, uh, Mark Anthony Cage's first yellow into a red, just given the, the sheer pressure of the crowd. But, yeah, I, I would really expect Sunday to be, you know, this team have created some really special moments. I think this could be another one. And just, you know, maybe not to belabor the point, but Jamaica as well, probably just about kind of the the best opposition that you could want. They've got a lot of talent, but they just haven't gelled in this campaign. And they're kind of, I think they're looking to get to the end of the campaign as soon as possible. Well, sunny and minus one. Our, our team seems to thrive in winter weather, so that may be on their side too. So we'll see. Joe, thanks so much for this. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Appreciate your time today. Yeah. Great to chat, Bill. Enjoy the game Sunday. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that came up during the meeting in Brussels this week uh, was about defense spending. And every time there's a NATO meeting, invariably, uh, the idea of Canada's contribution to a NATO's defense spending uh, is being questioned. I know Donald Trump was very vocal about that, but other leaders have been as well. Uh, and even while the prime minister was in Brussels earlier this week, uh, the lobbying for more defense uh, involvement in NATO uh, was happening here in Ottawa, and, and not here in Ottawa, but in this country, certainly. Stephen Chase writes about this in the uh, the Globe and Mail today. Uh, he is the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to bring us up to speed on that. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, we know, of course, as we mentioned, the prime minister was in Brussels. Uh, we know the defense minister, Anita Anand, was with the prime minister uh, but the lobbying didn't stop. Uh, you write uh, in, in the Globe today about uh, the uh, defense minister for Latvia, who was actually in Ottawa, talking to the defense uh, minister, uh, the defense office, rather, but also the deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, uh, and uh, with a pretty significant ask. Maybe you could describe that to our listeners. 
Yes, uh, Artis Pabrix is the, uh, he's not only the defense minister of Latvia, but he's also the uh, deputy prime minister. And of course, Latvia is where we have Canada's biggest military deployments right now with at least uh, close to 700 soldiers uh, will be there. That'll, that'll be the count by the end of uh, March. And so he was, they're, they're seeking, uh, they want Canada to play a bigger role in, in, in NATO and there is something which is it's got awkward name. It's called the forces structure. Basically, it's a part of NATO that plans for war. So, you know, we, we most of what we see when we see NATO these days is sort of the operational uh, office side of things. But there's a whole other se- uh, separate structure in NATO that plans for war. And there is something called multinational division north. It is in it is based in Riga, the capital of Latvia, which is where Canadians are. And it basically plans for war with the Russians, uh, and it coordinates uh, the uh, the land forces of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, which are the three uh, Baltic states, uh, most of which basically are directly adjacent Russia. So they, uh, Mr. Pabrix uh, is asking that we take on a leadership role in this organization, and this would be in addition to what we're doing now, which, of course, is leading a multinational battle group of uh, currently about 1,700 people uh, from 10 countries there. So, yeah, they're looking for more from us, but, of course, that's not all they're looking for. They're also looking for us to start spending some real money on defense. Uh, it's worth mentioning because, well, you did mention in the piece in the Globe and Mail, uh, those nations you just talked about were formerly, of course, under Soviet rule as part of the USSR. Uh, and I guess right now, that when they see what's going on in Ukraine, Stephen, uh, I'm sure that their angst has, has ramped up considerably right now. Do they feel as if they're in the crosshairs too? Yes. The The way they put it is that they are grateful to be part of NATO, and they do feel protected within NATO, but that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, they're worried they will be next because the Kremlin has, the Kremlin has never been happy with these three Baltic states, former Soviet republics, joining NATO, which they all joined roughly in 2005. And uh, in fact, many of these people who are in power right now in Latvia and Lithuania and so on, they're in their 50s, and they served in the Soviet Army as teenagers. So they don't, and, and some of them, uh, the Secretary of State for Defense uh, in, in Latvia, his, his, his parents-in-law were, and their families were sent to the Soviet Gulag. So they, they have a, a, a distinct uh, loathing for being under Russia's heel. There's even a new monument they built in Latvia, the capital of Riga, just, just last summer, about all the people that were trundled off to uh, Soviet gulags. So it's a very real and very visceral fear. Uh, and you mentioned, of course, about their involvement in NATO, and they're, they're, they're members now. And, you know, an attack against one is an attack against all. And, and a lot of us, I guess, uh, maybe naively, Stephen, assume that, well, that Putin's never going to do that. I mean, you know, what he's doing in Ukraine, he's doing because he knows uh, that they're not going to set foot across the border. Would he be bold enough, if he's as successful in Ukraine, to, to start targeting these three nations, too? The concern has been that if we fail to stop Putin, if the West fails to stop Putin, if NATO fails to stop Putin in Ukraine, that eventually he will turn his attention to the Baltics, too, because he is obsessed with the idea there needs to be a buffer zone between Russia and the West. And the buffer zone means that the country next to you is not part of NATO. And if he succeeds in making Ukraine a buffer zone, essentially a, a sterile puppet state, which is not part, has no real links with the West and no real uh, relationship with the West, then the other areas he's going to look to are the Baltics. And, of course, 
Estonia and Latvia uh, are directly border Russia. And Lithuania borders Belarus, which everybody considers the puppet state of Russia right now. So effectively, it's kind of moot. But the, that would be the next place for him to look, yes. Uh, you mentioned in the piece, uh, this is, I thought, an interesting quote from uh, Mr. Pabricks. Uh, we need to de-Putinize the West. We cannot approach this aggressive authoritarian regime with soft gloves. So he's, he's looking for action here from the Canadians, isn't he? Yeah, he's looking for action from the West. What he's talking about is we're going after the oligarchs, um, and, but many of these oligarchs have extended family uh, who then effectively hold their properties for them in the West. So there are legions of wealthy oligarchs, you know, children, brothers, sisters, daughters, and so on, who, who are still holding most of their assets in the West. And his point is they are living in the West, benefiting from the West, but at the same time promoting the war, supporting the war, and helping perpetuate the, the system uh, of wealth that surrounds Mr. Putin. So he's saying, you know, we're, we've only begun this process of, of uh, uh, sort of removing that from the West. And, of course, uh, what he's also talking about is setting a, a firm date for all Western European countries to be to, to end their reliance on Russian petroleum, uh, chiefly natural gas. As question mentioned here, as Patrick is in Ottawa talking to uh, Minister Freeland, uh, we know that the Prime Minister and, uh, and Minister Anand, who were over in Brussels, uh, were once again reminded uh, that they, they need to step up with uh, increased spending. Uh, is what Mr. Pabrick's t- talking about here a way for Canada to do that? Because the, the question has always been, it's not just a dollar figure. It's, okay, where would Canada's assets go? It sounds to me as if uh, Minister Pabrick's here is, is giving them uh, uh, basically a, a, an outline and a game plan for, for Canada's involvement, or Canada's increased involvement anyway. He is offering them another role, but this is not an equipment-heavy role. This would mostly be, uh, you know, flag level. This would basically involve a Canadian general and a bunch of our of senior staff, um, and then of course war planners and logistics planners and so on. So it's not, you know, tip of the spear uh, combat troops or you know high-powered artillery. It's more of the uh, sort of uh, senior management uh, logistics approach. So it's it's not the full picture. And, and I guess when we talk about Canada's failure to meet its NATO commitment of 2%, we haven't spent 2% of our annual economic output, uh, our GDP, on, on, um, on the military since 1990 in this country. And what we tend to do, and this is the little trick we play, is we tend to find a big ticket or a, a, a public, very public uh, contribution, and then we, we play that up as if that would somehow mitigate the, the, the concerns. For instance, uh, you can expect to hear Canada talking a lot about its battle group in Latvia, the leadership of the battle group in Latvia over the next little while, as it attempts to sort of beat back calls for more spending. And of course, we're, the other thing is, and I should point this out, that we have uh, failed to spend, failed to make a decision on buying uh, new jet fighters for like 20, 12 years now. And uh, so we, it's likely that what we'll do is commit to buying jet fighters and ask to include that as the, in the count. But of course, that's simply replacing assets. That's not adding assets, right? Yeah, and I know you've written about that in the past as well. I mean, even with the fleet that we have, which is outdated, uh, I think half of them are grounded right now, aren't they? You know, I would say maybe we have 70 uh, that actually work and the rest are parts and spare parts and so on. So it's a very it's a very minor number for a country of our size. And I talk about our geographic size from Ellesmere Island to, you know, to, to, to uh, Vancouver Island and so on. Mm-hmm. You can make the three points yourself there. 
uh, well, more to come on that, we certainly hope. Uh, another piece that you wrote, i got a couple of minutes left here, Stephen, if you could. Uh, discussion with uh, Boris Johnson and the Prime Minister of what a free trade deal with the UK and Canada. Of course, this first surfaced uh, when the UK opted out of, uh, of what was going on with the European Union, and, and they wondered, you know, well, what kind of deals are going to be in place? And I know Canada offered something up. Have they hammered out any details about that? How far down the road are they? Well, it looks like we're just at the outset, actually, instead of far down the road. Uh, back in uh, about a year, more than a year ago, we basically stapled in place a temporary deal to sort of tie things over after the uh, UK left uh, the Brexit. Now, now, the UK is actually a pretty important trading partner. It's like the second largest destination for our exports if you combine both goods and services, services being engineering, you know, banking and all that stuff. So it's a pretty important uh, destination for exports. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot of uh, British uh, investment here. But the, the thing is, is that um, the U.K. is desperate for trade deals. It needs to have what we call preferential access to foreign markets now that it's lost uh, its trading relationship through the EU. And uh, they're saying it could take two years to hammer out a deal. Uh, I think the big problem is going to come down, down to what it always comes down to is both countries' uh agricultural sectors and how much they're willing to open them up. And that, that is always a sticking point. There also might be a, an issue with banks because the UK, we have, we have powerful banks, but the UK is a powerful banking sector as well. And there's going to be a tussle over how much each gets access to each other's sector. So um, could take a, could take a couple of years. I don't, uh, I don't see this being a, a quick, a quick fix. I was going to ask you about that because we, you know, referenced that, I guess, by way of comparison uh, with the the Canada-U.S. negotiations that went on. And Christy Freeland, of course, was deeply involved in that with uh, Robert Lighthizer on the other side of the boat. And the auto sector was a key element of that. And, of course, the dairy sector. So you're suggesting that the the agriculture could actually be the the rather acrimonious element of the negotiations here, too. Yeah, and we have have like a a split personality when it comes to uh, foreign trade. We are protectionists heavily protectionist when it comes to dairy, eggs, and poultry. We don't want people coming in. We give limited access. But when it comes to grain, beef, and pork, we are world-class free traders. <laughs> the whole different world there. And we're, we're always seeking export markets for our grain, pork, and, and beef, and chicken, and so on. And, of course, the challenge is going to be uh, the, Amer- the Brit- Brits aren't going to give us full access. They're going to give us partial access. And so we're going to be fighting for that. Meanwhile, the dairy, eggs, and poultry sector in this country have, have told the prime minister and the government that they will not accept any more ac- uh, foreign access into our markets. And when I say foreign access, I mean foreign access without tariffs. It's called tariff, tariff-free, tariff-free access. Uh, and in fact, the government has committed in writing that it will not allow this. But Boris Johnson is not giving up. He, has, he wants to sell lot, loads of uh, uh, British cheese to Canada, and he has said he, he wants to see... Uh, more uh, tariff-free access for British cheese. So despite the government's tough talk about not letting in any more uh, British cheese at, at uh, tariff-free prices, it uh, looks like Mr. Johnson's going to be pushing for that. How contentious is this going to be with the Canadian agricultural industry? I know going well, back a couple like of years it. ago, remember Prime Minister Harper tried to strike a deal with the European Union, about, uh, and dairy yeah. was a very contentious item. And, well, and, it, what happens, and they did this with the TPP too, that Trans-Pacific Partnership, is we essentially cut a check and we kind of compensate. He actually pays compensation to the dairy farmers for allowing in foreign competition. And he's already, uh, we're on the hook for billions in compensation for both the TPP and, and the European deal. And if, if we were to do it again, we'd have, uh, Mr. Trudeau would have to take out the checkbook again 
Uh, but he is, uh, but, and this is where it's going to come down to, is how, how badly he doesn't want this deal with Britain. Is he willing to offer them some cheese access despite having promised not to? And, of course, that would lead to a checkbook. Absolutely. Uh, as always, appreciate the time today. Uh, great reporting, as, uh, as we expect, of course, from you, Stephen. Uh, have a great weekend. It's been a busy week for you, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Take care. Stephen Chase was the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. And a couple of very, very important elements of uh, the negotiations over the last couple of weeks, both uh, to do with, of course, with NATO and uh, with the UK and the uh, eminent, uh, we think, uh, free trade deal. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.